This is Engineering Heroes. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Engineering Heroes, a podcast that presents the incredible engineers that are shaping our society and battling our challenging issues. Today's guest is going to speak to us about the three pillars of engineering and how soft skills are really quite hard. However, all this is made better when you have balance, when you have true gender diversity. And he's not just speaking theoretically. He has seen and experienced engineering projects with almost 50-50 gender split. My name is Melanie, and my co-host and our podcast's resident engineer speaking to us from the trenches is Dominic. Our guest attended James Cook University and achieved a Bachelor of Engineering with Honours in Civil Engineering, and has also obtained a postgraduate diploma in Management and an MBA in Technology Management. The bulk of his career, he has been an engineer for Brisbane City Council, as well as being heavily involved with Engineers Without Borders, where he's currently the chairman. He was also elected to the Board of Directors for Toastmasters International. Our guest was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for worldwide services to the community in communication and leadership development, particularly through Toastmasters International. He was also awarded the National Emergency Medal for significant contributions to managing the response to the devastating floods in Brisbane in 2011. Today, we are so pleased to be speaking with Gavin Blakey. So, Gavin grew up in country Queensland and his dad was a motor mechanic. He would spend hours on end in the workshop, really getting his hands dirty and was inspired by the practical nature of his dad's solutions. He did fairly well in school and was drawn to engineering because of its practical nature, although it took him well past the first year of his university degree to really understand what engineering actually was. He landed in civil engineering because the uni he attended only did civil engineering, a decision he is really pleased he went with. Civil engineering is such a broad, I guess, profession that there's so much you can do in civil engineering. So what was the very first project you worked on as an engineer? Yeah, you're really testing my memory now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spent the first eight years in private enterprise working in engineering consultancy and the last 30 I've spent in local government. Uh, and so when as I think about it, it's 38 years ago now, is like the ones that sort of come to my mind most strongly are the ones which are out in the field because I, when I started working for McIntyre and Associates all those years ago uh, up in Townsville, I had the chance to do quite a lot of ge- geotech uh, yep. out in the field, drilling holes. In fact, because I worked with my father in his workshop, I had all the licenses, so truck license, bus license, ah, semi-trail right. license, a whole lot. So actually, it was even operating our drilling rig for McIntyre and Associates there for a while. So it really, literally, was hands on. Hands on really engineer. It. That's it. <laughs> Drive the truck, drill the holes, <laughs> log, log, log the holes. But I love that because you really did get a first-hand feel for being in the field. Whereas at the university, most of it, of course, is spent at the university, and you had some pracs, but. A lot of it's quite theoretical. So being able to get out in the field and get hands-on, something I thoroughly enjoyed. So one of those that stands out for me is the Horton Main Channel, which runs between the Burdekin River, which is a very large river up in North Queensland. It pops out on the coast at Ayr and Home Hill. 
And between there and Guru, it is a few kilometres up the road, maybe 30 kilometres up the road, is a channel that we um, did, I did all the investigation for. So it was to send the irrigation water between the Burdekin River and the Horton River. I saw it on, maybe, was it on Google Maps or maybe on Near Map? I think it was on Near Map just recently. When I was there, it was all bushland. But now you can see downstream of the Horton Main Channel, it's all cane lands and, and, and agriculture. So oh, I right. sort of feel quite proud that I had a little bit to do with increasing the, the agricultural ability of that area. Hmm. That's awesome. What's your role at the moment? Yes, yeah, so well, actually, this week's a big week. Um, so this week's the last... My last week, um, finishing up. I'm retiring. Oh, right. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, he just um, caught you. <laughs> it just got me, yeah. <laughs> and when I moved down to Brisbane, I was very fortunate at the time because it was more engineers than jobs, and I had five job offers. So I had plenty to choose from. I could stay with the job I had, and I had uh, many other job offers as well. And I ended up deciding to go with local government because – I found that it was very close to the community and I felt as an engineer, you can see that more direct impact on the community. And there's certainly an important role for consultants to play, for example, in design, construction, um, planning, all of those aspects. And so my journey actually within Brisbane City Council has been probably 12 or 15 different roles in the last 30 years. And over 30 years, I've had a range right through from geotechnical to uh, pavement engineering, um, sustainable water use, flood management, industrial relations. I spent a year in industrial relations and negotiating our first EBA, Enterprise Bargaining Agreement, for the organization, yeah. uh, to business development, which included international consultancies. Okay. I've also had the chance to do strategic asset management and also been able to do a lot of innovation, I think, and to be able to combine the skills really of engineering but also those organizational skills and the people skills and I think that's the, what I can bring to any role is that sort of three-legged stool where you mm -hmm. have the technical skill the people skill and the organizational skill and in my experience those are a very powerful combination to be able to get things done. So you're finishing up there in a week but yeah. you're continuing on with Engineers Without Borders as yeah, that's right. That's why, and I know people listening won't be able to see it, but I sort of did the inverted commas with my fingers because <laughs> it's retirement in the sense that I would be much less paid work. And in fact, most of our time will be volunteering and, and in the engineering sector. So I'm currently the chair of the board for Engineers Without Borders Australia. And that, what that does is enables me to be able to contribute my engineering skills, but also that combination I mentioned earlier on about the people skills and the organisational skills. And I've had the chance to be the in-country manager for Engineers Without Borders Australia in 2015. So I spent a year in Cambodia doing that. And then prior to that, my wife and I spent probably three months in Cambodia in doing some volunteering there. So I've taken some long service leave and some annual leave to be able to do some volunteering in Cambodia. And she's been doing that work now for the last seven years. And often we're in different countries doing that work or I'm back here working. So we want to be able to be in the same country at the same time. <laughs> Always through Engineers yeah. Without Borders? I've mainly been through that. She's been doing her work through Australian Volunteers International, the Australian Volunteers Program. And we're linked in with that as well with the Engineers Without Borders because most of our funding for the international development work comes from DFAT, Department of Foreign Affairs yeah. and Trade, yeah. yep. and AUSAID. And what they do is then they're at that and, and then we have to provide some funding also from some of our donors. So the, um, the work that I've done has been on a voluntary basis and then that country manager role was actually on a uh, paid basis then for a, for a year. And both 
both of those were through Engineers Without Borders. But that first one, actually, I did just uh, take some long service leave because B had been off doing with Australian business volunteers and Australian Volunteers International. And I framed up a project with the EWB to say, I'm taking some long service leave and going over to Cambodia anyway. We're already in Cambodia, EWB. Is there anything I can do? And they said, well, actually, a project you could do would be to look at the professional development of the engineering team in, not our own team, but engineers yeah. in Cambodia. And what I, it was my first lesson in some ways about assumptions mm-hmm. in a developing country. And my assumption was that they would need more technical development. Well, actually, there's that too. I mean, that's really, would be, is really helpful. But when I surveyed them and when I talked with them and I went and worked with them, what they're looking for was people skills and organizational skills because. <laughs> hadn't actually received a lot of that when they were going through their engineering degree. And that was one of those aha moments in engineering where I thought I knew the solution. I thought, well, sure, we can, we can get some technical solutions happening if that's helpful. But by talking to people, it's a human-centered design principle, really. Talking to people, you can find out what is actually is useful and important to them. Just going to take a slight break here before we get back to Gavin, and he shares with us some really incredible observations about engineering. 4th of March is going to be an awesome day. It's the very first World Engineering Day for Sustainable Development. It's a day to highlight the achievements of engineers and all the engineering works in our modern world. And very much like this podcast, it has the goal of improving the public understanding of how engineering and technology is central to our life and sustainable development. To prepare you all for this momentous day, we've been asked by the World Federation of Engineering Organisations to create a mini-series to highlight each of the UN Sustainable Development Goals and an engineer who is working in each of those spaces. So running all of February, Dom and I are releasing 17 mini episodes from our talks with engineers from around the world as they highlight their plans to help us achieve the UN SDGs. Check out more on our website, www.engineeringheroes.com.au forward slash WED 2020. Now getting back to Gavin, just to refresh your memory, he started in consultancy, but when he moved to Brisbane, he took a job with Brisbane Council. After 30 years, he has just literally retired to pursue his passion for helping communities in need through Engineering Without Borders. Gavin's work with EWB has given him a really interesting perspective on diversity within engineering. When we think about it, it's actually quite a male-dominated profession. And it's great that we have so many men who are interested in, in, in engineering. But if we look at the cross-section of society, it's quite different to the cross-section of engineering. If we just go to gender now and look at the number of women and men in engineering, across Australia it's about 13% female. That means that there's 87% who are, are male. Yeah. And it's kind of like practically 9 to 1 in, uh, ratio. And um, I think we could get much better outcomes as a profession, as a, as a community, as a society, if that was a little bit more balanced. And so that way it's more representative of the society. Yeah, I, I agree. The strategies and the ways in which we can make that change happen, make sure that it, the shift uh, it comes quickly too, that we're not having to wait a long time for it. So mm. it's, it is very, very big challenge in um, the engineering fraternity at the moment. Have you noticed the uh, difference that a more diverse team could bring to a project from an engineering perspective? Oh, absolutely. Diversity in thinking and diversity in approach, diversity in manner. And this is a huge generalization, but I'll put it out there anyway, uh, is that my experience in, in having more females in the team is it actually brings the team together more. 
is that they have, in my experience, is most of them have great people skills. And so that's a real enabler for including people in the solutions and um, being able to draw people in, to be able to listen to and encourage people to be part of the process. And that's not to say that men can't and don't have those skills. So it's it's not directly gender related in that sense. Males and females can have that. But as a generalization, in my experience, has been that it's that uh, skill. And the reason that's one reason that's so powerful is because those women also have the technical skills. Mm, So they've got both. It's a double. Yeah. Two, two of the two of the three seated stool that you're talking about. Absolutely, yeah. And and then what I can do in help in helping them is to get that third leg yeah. in a way, is because if they're already coming in with some skills, and once again, this is a generalization. It's not true of everybody, and both male or female. But uh, as a generalization, if they've already got some great people skills and they've got some great technical skills, but they're obviously building on those too. Because if they're in the formative part of their early part of their career, then they're still the seeking um, some more experience in that. But that third one, they don't really get until they've um, got been within an organization. That's the organizational skills. And that's how I can be helpful. I think I can actually be helpful in the other two as well, but they haven't been as exposed to the, the organizational side. Well, if I can help them to weed their way through the jungle, because <laughs> it's a bit like that sometimes, is that that can be very helpful for them to understand well, how my, they and we get those engineering solutions up and running. Because you have the best idea in the world, but if you're not able to communicate it effectively, if you're not able to mm. get it through the organizational processes, it remains a great idea that didn't become a reality. Do you think, just as a bit of an aside, the, mm. do you think that the people skills is something that that they're learning at university or you know while they're doing their training? Is it something that needs to be focused on a little bit more than, um, than it currently is? It's a yes and yes to those, in my view, and yes in the sense of they do some, because we're seeing more and more that there are group activities. This has yeah. been my experience in talking with the people who are going through our programs and at work is that they are doing more group, more group assignments, and some of them find that really challenging. And some of them find that a little bit easier. And it's both, I'm talking about male and female. Yeah. So that's part of the, of the people skills. That's really fundamental to, to enable you to be able to work effectively in the workplace. Because as we know, to get things done in the workplace, it's not enough just to have a technical skill. Yep. You need to be able to work with people. You need to be able to understand how processes and systems work and indeed how they don't work sometimes <laughs> and what to be able to do about it in those circumstances. So we do see more of that happening where the universities are recognizing the importance of get those students gaining those skills early and some universities do that more than others. So the other part of the answer to your question, which I suggested yes was, should there be more? Yes, absolutely, because it's a an important skill for students to have when if they want to be uh, graduate engineers. And I think what universities probably found difficulty in the past is how do you cram more stuff into the program mm. yeah. because it's already a full program. I think one way to do that is just exactly that is to make more of it that active learning where they're working together, but give them some skills on how to do some of that active learning. So maybe I think you probably we could find that by having some tutorials, some lectures, some hands-on experience on how to work together, actually they would gain more technical skills anyway because yeah. they can do that collectively together. So being able to have what are described as softer skills, but in some ways are harder skills, yep. harder as more difficult, <laughs> yeah. are the people skills, is to gain that early on 
profoundly changes the, the, the way that a young person can then contribute throughout their career. Having said that, it's a learned skill, so you can learn it any time, but the earlier, earlier the people learn it, the more effective we can all be throughout our career. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it's something good if you can pick up early as well, that it only gets better and better with time. So mm-hmm. um, having those fundamentals down is probably going to make you a better engineer because you're going to be more effective at an earlier sort of stage of your career as well. well I like what, um, Gavin, the way you've presented it in that, because it is important that engineers still learn the technical skills. It's that mm. You can't not learn that. Yeah, yeah it's fundamental. Mm. But the way that you incorporate that sort of collaborative learning and learning that skill set sort of incidentally along the way, <laughs> it has to be a conscious decision. So what, what sort of things would you do to encourage diversity? Because that's the problem. Mm. So what's the solution? Mm. What, what can mm. be done to increase that 13% up to 50%? Yeah, we're, we're pretty fortunate engineers with our board of Australia because We've got a, some great track record there, and I'll unpack a little bit of the why shortly, but maybe I can, engineers love numbers, so I'll just share some of the stats there <laughs> with you. Bring them on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got a report we put out called Engineering Redefined, and it's okay. specifically yes. around why is it being why is it successful. And these stats up here, which I'll read out. We can put a link to, to the, the report, report. On, yeah, on the website. So, yeah, we'll oh, definitely. For those listening, do. we'll go to the website <laughs> and we'll be able to direct you to the right spot. <laughs> That'll be fantastic because in EWB we've got so Design Summit is a two-week in-country, in-community experience. So usually the students, and they'd be usually second, third, or fourth, usually second or third-year students, will go to Cambodia or Vietnam or to Borneo or Nepal and have an experience of a wicked problem, which is how do you how do you help a village, whether it be through water supply or sanitation? They define the problem, work on that together. Those in-country, in-community experiences are quite profound. I had a, when I was working over there as the country manager, in-country manager, I had a chance to be able to go along and participate in some of those. And to see the growth in the students was just inspiring. And the numbers we have on that is 45% are female. So the number of students who go on that, that's three times the national, more than three times the national average are female going on these they're sort of seeing that direct link between the work we do in engineering for making a difference in communities, making a difference in families, making a difference in, in the world. So I think that's one aspect is that uh, females are picking up the link between the work that engineers do and the difference that we can make in the world. Hang on. Unpack that slightly in that you've just said 45% of the students that attend this design, uh, what did you call it, design, um, design summit, design summit uh, females. Yeah. So in reality, if that continued on in real life, like mm-hmm. you could sit back and go, yep, we have gender diversity. <laughs> right there. Right there. So you're, you're oh, that is amazing. That, yeah. What, Thank I, the, you. The, the vibe that would be coming out mm-hmm. of that sort of event would be amazing. It is inspiring, isn't it? And it it's completely is. different to the fear where, like, as both of you would know, that you go into an engineering meeting and it's, it's practically all male. And if you go into one of these, whereas 45% female, there's just something different about the dynamic that's going on there. And, and that that's a really powerful. And it's, a, it's really energizing and inspiring and enabling. And I think, not more think, I'm, I'm confident that they get more effective solutions coming out of it. Oh, cool. Well, I, I'll let you continue on with the stats because that's, mm. that's a great mm. one. But I want to know how you get that 45%. So we'll <laughs> yeah, circle yeah. back around to that. 
Ah, yes, we'll come back to it for sure because I've got support numbers to share on the same lines. So in our research program, so a number of those will then go back and do a final year research project. And out of the research projects that we work with universities on, 40% of those research projects are done by females. So there's quite a lot of links there, I would say, to the 45%. So 45% on design summits, 40% on the research projects. A number of those would be non-design summits that, hey, I want to do more of this. And so they, once again, they can see the link between the type of work that EWB does in engineering a better world and the type of engineering that they want to do and become. If we now turn to think about the the volunteers or um, the movement of engineers without borders Australia, about 40% of those people are female and about two-thirds of our leadership is female. Mm. So that's completely even more to the extreme. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And probably about more than 80% of our staff are female. So then you ask the question, what's going on here? And we just received an award by Engineers Australia, the national award for a uh, for-purpose organisation because of our, our gender diversity. So then I guess the question on your lips is, why is that so? More yeah. like how? How is that so? <laughs> what is going on? Are you kidnapping all these women and saying, you will work for us? Like, what, what are you doing? Well, I actually think it stems from the, from the why. Uh, and I think the why then determines the how. And what, what, what the way I like explain that would be because what we express what we do is about engineering a better world through people for people by people and that we are able to demonstrate all those values that we have and we sort of stick to those values and the solutions that we have are appropriate solutions that we're community-centered that human-centered engineering that's very attractive it attracts both male and female, but particularly I think females resonate with that a lot. And I'm going to make another huge generalisation, and I'm, I, the caveat is it's not true for all males, but it's just a generalisation would be that often males are attracted to engineering because problem solving is analytical, it's hands-on, and all that's great, and actually we need people who do that too. I think what the females will bring to it is a lot of that plus linking it into the, that greater question of the why we're doing this uh, to make a difference in our community. So it's actually focusing on um, solving the problem rather than creating a solution, if that makes sense. Because until you can define what the problem is, the solution might be the incorrect solution. Yeah. And what many of us, including myself, have done in the past is rush to a technical solution because I've got the solution for the problem. Mm. And I shared earlier on with that, with uh, mm. an insight into that, and that was about when I went to Cambodia thinking that the problem was they probably need more technical expertise and experience. Well, actually, yeah, a bit of that would be useful. But actually what they were asking for was people skills and organisational skills. So what I'd done there is I'd made an assumption about what the problem was and I'd created a solution. Yeah, I could help out there. I know people can help on this. But actually what I'd... I need to do and did do was go back and ask what was the challenge, what was the issue, what do you want to focus on? It was then who was telling us. And that's what I think is happening here to, to a great extent is that is a direct link between what engineering can and how it can create a better world and women are really attracted to that. I'm just loving this because in my head I'm drawing connections to uh, a few previous episodes where there's been a lot of talk that engineers need to improve their story they need to change their story they need to connect the a to the b so they're not just building a bridge they're building a link from community a to community b. like that that terminology needs to be shaken up and what you've just connected then is 
not only does the terminology, you're not building a bridge, you're building a, a link between communities, mm. not only will it help engineers, it will actually possibly bring in more diversity within the engineering community yeah. if you're successful in changing the story. Yeah. So it's kind of like a win-win-win scenario. Yes. That, I, I mm. find that very profound. Yeah, yeah I think I, that's really a fantastic summary too of linking together those various pieces because it truly is a, a bit of a puzzle and mm. it's all interlinked. It's not to all stand alone. And, and, and be able to change the languages changes everything. So what are your thoughts on the future of engineering? I'm very optimistic. I think there's a lot of potential, very incredibly exciting. If you look at the trajectory that we've been on over the last few years, uh, whether it be through the innovation or through digital changes, etc., is that it's moving so quickly, it's almost frightening. There was a quote down at the World Engineering Conference, and I'm, I'm going to say it was Justin Trudeau. He wasn't there, but this is the quote that I, that I heard, was that along the lines of the world's moving very quickly, it's never been this fast before, and it'll never be this slow again. It's never been this fast before, and it'll never be this slow again. And that's a great take on it, isn't it? Because it's almost taking off so quickly, it's hard to keep up. But that's exciting too. I think it's going to be a, a wild ride. But we as engineers have the, not more than the possibility. We, in some ways, have the responsibility and certainly the potential to make a significant difference. So if you think about climate change, and I'll put a plug in here for the um, you know, engineers declare is that if anybody would like to go on there and, and make a declaration is that this is what we can do as engineers, say we can make a difference. This is a real chance for us as individuals and as a group to be able to stump up and say, yeah, and everything that we do, how can we make sure it's sustainable? How can we make sure that it's going to help to build a better world? So I'm very optimistic that there will be great um, solutions out there which are technologically based but appropriate for the circumstances that are needed by people and uh, people are engaged in that process and that can be applied in a way that improves the world. But I think it's going to be a real merging of some of the disciplines of engineering and where the power will come is when the mechanical engineers, the civil engineers, the electrical engineers, the biomedical engineers, which didn't even exist a few years ago, mm. <clears throat> all of those different parts of engineering come together and like, what can we do together? <laughs> and much more than that is... What about with the, the planners and what about with the social planners and what about with the psychologists? That's where the power will be. All of those other professions, all of us coming together and looking for solutions which can meet the needs of the community. I think it's an incredibly exciting future. So what would you say to people just starting out? I would say to people, be open to areas outside engineering. And we do actually need specialist engineers as well. So it's whatever is going to work most best for you. So we do need people with PhDs in engineering. One of my co colleagues has a PhD in Asheville. Right. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty special. He's like, yeah. love <laughs> and he loves it. And we need people like Greg because he can dive deeply into technically into that. And that makes uh, cheaper better roads for us. Others will have be better off broadening out. So it's horses for courses. It's whatever is going to work best for you. In my instance, I prefer to be, to be more broadly based, and that is to, yeah, get some of those other skills. And I develop a lot of my skills not directly through engineering or university but other avenues and Toastmasters. That made a profound difference in my life. And that uh, sounded very evangelical, but it's absolutely true because as a young engineer, I had a traumatic experience, in fact, as an undergraduate at university where I was delivering 
a lecturer, well, not actually a lecturer, a seminar to doctors and professors and people who know more than you know. They know that when they ask a question, they will know the answer and you won't. Yeah. <laughs> and so they don't do that to be difficult or to be able to uh, make you uncomfortable, but it does make you uncomfortable if you're a natural introvert like I am, is that you don't know how to answer that question. They were just trying to test out your knowledge, but it was really traumatic for me. And I decided I had to do something about my confidence and competence in communication. And that's where I joined Toastmasters. And it's best known as a public speaking organization. It's actually a leadership development organization. And that just completely transformed my ability in my career to be able to do, be more effective as an engineer. That's amazing. Yeah, we've yeah. had somebody come through and say uh, some advice is like get into the debating club. So it's, it's quite aligned a little bit to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the advantage of doing something like that in a community-based organization is you're also broadening out your experience so you come into contact with other people. You, mm. As an engineer, you wouldn't necessarily in your day job. So that gives you a sort of a broader perspective. But also those for-purpose organizations, they, they exist to help people to help themselves become more effective. So if you think of the Toastmasters model, it doesn't exist for its own sake. It exists to be able to help people to be more effective communicators and leaders and apply that in their professional community and their personal lives. And as an engineer, that has really opened up the possibilities for me. I learned all my leadership skills in that organization and applied it in my workplace. So I could test out some things there. I could learn how to be an effective speaker. I could learn how to be able to lead a team by being on an executive in, in Toastmasters. And this is true of other organizations too. I'm using this one as an example because that's been my experience. And that the reason that's so profound is because I can learn those skills and apply them to other parts of my life. So I strongly urge engineers to, to be able, young engineers in particular, but any engineers, to be able to develop up those people skills, those organizational skills. It'll be, it's amazing for your career. It'll take you places you couldn't dream were possible. That's great. Just to finish up, What's a piece of engineering that impresses you? Oh, there's so many, it's hard to narrow it down, but I'm going to narrow it down to one. And that was, and I became aware of this one at the National Conference for Engineers Australia last year. I've been very aware of the technology for a long time, but I saw the man who led the team, which developed this technology, and that is Wi-Fi. Ah, It's been a transformative technology, and... It was a CSIRO scientist and engineer who developed up this technology with his team and they were off looking for another solution and came at the time and applied some of their skills to be able to come up with this, which may at the time didn't exist. I mean, really, all this connectivity and it's really profound when you look at all the devices. It's all this interconnection is that this is really a metaphor in some ways for what engineering is doing and uh, and doing more of it would be make a bigger, a more profound difference is connectivity. So in the physical sense, in the sort of the engineering sense of this Wi-Fi is now connected devices which connects people. And that's the other part of it is then it enables us to connect with people around the world. If we think about the fact that now devices can talk to each other to inform those devices about some information which then helps people to be able to become more connected and to make their life easier and and better, then Wi-Fi is one of those understated, perhaps even under-realized piece of technology that is a profound piece of engineering that has transformed and is transforming the way that we connect. Yeah, absolutely. Good on on CSIRO and those engineers for development. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so the, yeah, they developed the uh, the physical technology to make it stable and improve it and everything. So, um, and who's mm-hmm. an engineer that you admire? I'm going to share you with a fifty dollar note. 
<laughs> you can send it in the pe- post, I'll accept it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little story. I actually delivered a presentation to for the Centenary of Engineers Australia for all their young engineers up here in Queensland. It was to they have a breakfast up here and it has over three hundred people and we had it at the city hall, and it was. Uh, young engineers and executives coming together to be able to share knowledge both ways. And I, I said to them, I put the challenge to them, I said, this is one. This is the person on the $50 note, an inspiring engineer, can anybody tell me who it was? And nobody could tell me, and I had this $50 note to give to whoever could tell me <laughs> who it was. And they were so disappointed they couldn't tell me. They're all pulling their $50 notes out to be able to read it. Uh, so that... He's not actually a qualified engineer, but he is a true engineer because it's David Unipon. He's an indigenous man. And if you have a look on the $50 note, you'll see on there there's uh, some of his inventions. He he still has the patent. He's passed away now, but he created the patent for the shears, for shearing sheep, and they're still used today. He also had a number of other non-patents, so he couldn't afford to get patents on a lot of his inventions. He's obsessed with perpetual motion, and today we'd call that sustainability and efficiency, but he was obsessed with how do you gain perpetual motion. He was what you'd describe as the Australian Leonardo da Vinci, because he always had lots of amazing ideas and was ahead of his time, so 100 years ago. He was born on a small, uh, what was in those days called a mission, and that was down at the mouth of the Murray. And I've been to that location. So if you have a look at the $50 note, you'll see a, a church on there. And that church is still there today. You can go down and visit that church. And that's where he was born near there. I think his father might have been a pastor. And all of these exist for this man who has really inspired uh, engineering and those solutions. And more than that, he's an indigenous engineer. And so I want to be able to just talk about that briefly is that I had the chance to go and visit some of the fish traps down there, which are engineering structures. Yeah. And it was so exciting to hear that Budgebim, which is now the oldest engineering structure recognized by, as a World Heritage Site, was recognized for that just uh, this year, late that this year. That was down in Adelaide, wasn't it? Yeah, down yeah. in... Yeah. We watched that yeah, just we recently. That, yeah. yeah. It's like they That's said, a, this is an engineering thing. I'm like, that just looks like a mound of stones. <laughs> yeah. But this is like, this was the That's original right, because they were traps. surveying it. They, yeah, they were surveying They were sending it. robots uh, to survey it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. So, That's a piece of engineering because back in tens of thousands of years ago, they were looking at this and saying, well, how can we work with nature to be able to use the water to be able to farm eels so that way we've got our our food right there. And they also built dwellings down there. So um, the reason I chose David Unipon is representative of uh, inventors, creators, amazing Australians, but also Indigenous engineers. And I'd like to see a lot more Indigenous engineering recognised and also Indigenous engineers because there's so much we can learn about sustainability from Australia's longest-serving engineers. So, yeah, he's uh, who I describe as an engineering hero. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much. It's been Mm. absolutely amazing. Thank you very much for the opportunity and to you guys for getting us out there and being able to share some of the engineering that is going on. I continue to be inspired by the amazing engineering that is really creating and engineering a better world. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of Engineering Heroes. If you want to know more about our podcast or the episode you just heard, visit our website www.engineeringheroes.com.au. The best way to show your support for our show is to tell people, either in person or write a review. 
just spread the word. Seriously, it's that easy. Now, we look forward to you and your friends joining us next week when we bring you another interview with one of our engineering champions.